This is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO's end-of-year campaign is happening right now. We invite you to donate and become a member today. We have the full spectrum of ways to join. Go to kboo.fm give or by texting KBOO to the number 44321. You can also mail a check to the station at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. Cut through the clouds and make it rain to help us meet our $75,000 goal by December 31st. Journey through lush songs and soundscapes teeming with life during the Garden of the Heart. Each episode explores the ways that music carries our emotions. Explore the Garden every second Friday of the month from 8 to 10 p.m. The Garden of the Heart is a bilingual program in English and Spanish that offers a mix of music that spans multiple genres, languages, and styles. The host is Zoe Kirk. This is Cesar Chavez. You're listening to KBOO, listener-sponsored radio. You are listening to a community forum on ending the cycle of violence in Palestine and Israel, organized by members of Jewish Voice for Peace, originally held at the Friends Meeting House in Portland, Oregon, and re-recorded for KBOO Community Radio. Our speakers tonight are Joel Benin, who will speak from a historical perspective, Mohammed Nabil will share his perspective as a Gazan, Wael El Asadeh will speak about Palestinian rights, and Noah Grayevsky will share her journey to anti-Zionism. Our first speaker is Joel Benin. Joel Benin is the Donald J. McLaughlin Professor of History and Professor of Middle East History Emeritus at Stanford University, where he taught from 1983 to 2019. His research and teaching have focused on the history and political economy of modern Egypt, Palestine, and Israel, and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. He has lived for extended periods in the Israeli-Palestinian area and in Egypt, including two years as Director of Middle East Studies at the American University in Cairo. He served as President of the Middle East Studies Association of North America. Let me begin by saying something about where we are after October 7th, and then I'll go back to some historical things. Two peoples now live and will continue to live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Neither is going anywhere. One of those peoples, the Israeli Jewish people, was largely implanted in the territory as a consequence of the Zionist settler colonial project. Nonetheless, they have become a national community. Between the river and the sea today, there are roughly equal numbers of Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews. I'd also like to include as part of the assessment of the situation something that my friend and colleague Matan Kaminer uh, said in an interview with the Left East website, that's a magazine of uh, Eastern European leftists. He said, I think the global left and the Palestine solidarity movement has to come to terms with what took place on October 7th. The violence which Israel has exercised since then, though immensely intensified, is essentially similar to the kind of violence it has meted out against the Palestinians for decades. This is the psychopathically instrumental rationality analyzed by the Frankfurt School, the rationality of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in which the clean taking of civilian lives from the air is justified by the claim that any other path would have caused the loss of more lives or of lives that matter more. But October 7th was, to my mind, something quite new. It was a complicated and confusing combination of three things. A stunning imaginative military upset undertaken by an obvious underdog against a hubristic Goliath, 
a strategically understandable, if morally reprehensible, hostage-taking campaign, and a sadistic outbreak of monstrous pogromistic violence, which took the lives of hundreds of defenseless civilians, including babies and old people, and included desecration of corpses, sexual violence, and other obscenities. It is not precisely the same as the anti-colonial violence of the 20th century, which was analyzed so trenchantly by Fanon. There is already something unprecedented about it, and it will take time to catch up intellectually. I'd add that people's reading of Fanon on colonial and anti-colonial violence is often uh, truncated and mistaken. So in one regard, Nothing has changed since October 7th. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, much will not be the same once the smoke from the current round of fighting uh, clears. When I was asked to talk, uh, people asked me to fill in the historical context. And so I asked, uh, when do you want me to begin? Should I begin in 2007 with Israel imposing the siege on the Gaza Strip? Should I begin in 1967 when Israel occupied the Gaza Strip in 1948 with the Palestinian Nakba and the creation of the Palest uh, Gaza Strip in 1917 with the Balfour Declaration uh, or in 1882 with the first modern Zionist settlement in Palestine. So I'm going to try to do all of that very briefly. Uh, in 2006, uh, Hamas won what was universally considered to be uh, a democratic election that was held for the Palestinian Legislative Council in both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Uh, subsequently, Israel and the United States uh, inspired a Fatah uh, coup d'etat uh, against the uh, uh, Hamas government. Hamas discovered the plot, unraveled it, and that created the situation uh, by which Hamas ruled in the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian Authority led by Fatah ruled in the West Bank until October 7th uh, of 2023. Uh, the Gaza Strip uh, as a entity was created by the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, the Palestinian Nakba, the uh, forced to flight or expulsion of three quarters of a million Palestinians. Uh, before 1948, the Gaza district was part of British Mandate Palestine, and it was part of the British Mandate that was supposed to have become an Arab state with the UN partition plan, which uh, proposed the establishment of an Arab and a Jewish state in British Mandate Palestine. During the war, Egyptian forces uh, succeeded in holding on to only a little bit of the coastal region of the Gaza district, and that became uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, it had a population of something under 100,000 before 1948, to which were added 160,000 refugees uh, that uh, were created during uh, the 1948 war, the Nakba. Uh, Egypt controlled the Gaza Strip between 1948 and until the 1967 Arab-Israeli war, uh, during which uh, Israel reoccupied for the second time, the first time in 1956, which we aren't talking about, uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, Ariel Sharon, in his capacity as commander of the Southern Command of Israel, crushed the Palestinian resistance in the, in the occupied Gaza Strip, which was actually quite fierce and, and much more militant and better organized than resistance in the West Bank in the early post-1967 period. Uh, he pushed um, over 150,000 refugees out of their homes, killed uh, 100 or more PLO suspects, arrested 700, uh, bulldozed uh, entire streets to make room for tanks to pass through so that Israeli patrols could be uh, more uh, pervasively and, and intrusively present uh, in the region. The whole story of the modern Zionist president presence in 
Palestine, uh, begins in two different places. Um, people are more familiar, perhaps, with the 1917 Balfour Declaration, in which the Zionist movement's alliance with British imperialism was established. Uh, subsequently, the Zionist movement was allied with France from the mid-1950s until 1967, and after the 1967 war, uh, more firmly and uh, in the more, more long-term period uh, with the United States. Uh, it's become common these days to talk about Zionism as a settler colonial movement, uh, and at the same time, there's been lots of resistance uh, to that notion. So it's worth remembering uh, that the early Zionist movement really until the end of World War II uh, openly called itself a settler colonial movement. Uh, Baron de Hirsch established in 1891 uh, an organization called the Jewish Colonization Association, whose purpose was to facilitate mass migration of Jews from Russia and other Eastern European countries by settling them uh, in agricultural colonies on lands purchased in Canada, the United States, Argentina, Brazil, and Palestine. Uh, Theodore Herzl, the founder of the World Zionist Organization, uh, drafted a letter to Cecil Rhodes, one of the preeminent uh, British imperialists of the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, and uh, he wrote this, but did not, never mailed the letter shortly after Rhodes had colonized the land of the Shona people in Africa, whose lands he claimed and then renamed Rhodesia, and today that's called Zimbabwe. Herzl wrote to Rhodes, you are being invited to help make history. It doesn't involve Africa, but a piece of Asia Minor, not Englishmen, but Jews. How then do I happen to turn to you, since this is an out-of-the-way matter for you? How indeed? Because it is something colonial. You, Mr. Rhodes, are a visionary politician or a practical visionary. I want you to put the stamp of your authority on the Zionist plan and to make the following declaration to a few people who swear by you. I, Rhodes, have examined this plan, that is the plan to establish a Jewish state in Palestine, and found it correct and practicable. It is a plan full of culture, excellent for the group of people for whom it is directly designed, and quite good for Greater Britain and England. So. Again, that letter was never mailed, but it's clear what uh, Herzl is thinking. Uh, and that kind of thinking was embraced across the Zionist spectrum. So in a very famous essay by Vladimir Jabotinsky, the ideological forerunner of today's Likud party, the ruling party in the Israeli uh, government, uh, the essay is called The Iron Wall and subtitled Colonization of Palestine. He wrote... See whether there is one solitary instance of any colonization being carried on with the consent of the native population. There is no such precedent. The native populations, civilized or uncivilized, have always st stubbornly resisted the colonists, irrespective of whether they were civilized or savage. The racialized language is part of the story here. And he goes on to imagine, as our Arabophiles do, that they will voluntarily consent to the realization of Zionism in return for the moral and material conveniences which the Jewish colonists brings with them is a childish notion, which has at bottom a kind of contempt for the Arab people. It means that they despise the Arab race, which they regard as a corrupt mob that can be bought and sold and are willing to give up their fatherland for a good railway system. It does not matter at all which phraseology we employ in explaining our colonizing aims. Colonization can have only one aim, and Palestine Arabs cannot accept this aim. It lies in the very nature of things, and in this particular regard, nature cannot be changed. And on the left end of the Zionist spectrum, uh, as it was defined uh, in the late 1940s, uh, David Ben-Gurion, the founding prime minister of Israel, argued uh, to the elected assembly, the, the Jewish elected assembly of Palestine, uh, in October of 1947, uh, is, as part of his argument that 
the Jewish community should accept the partition plan, he said. But security comes unarguably first. It dominated our concerns since the Yishuv, that is the Jewish settlement in Palestine, began from the start of colonization. We knew we must, in the main, in the main guarantee it ourselves. So just as a matter of course, um, colonization is what is being acknowledged as that's what the Zionist movement is doing. One of the strongest and most culturally influential statements of this uh, was a eulogy that Moshe Dayan, who was then uh, chief of staff of the Israeli army, delivered for Roy Rothberg, who was responsible for the security of Kibbutz Nachal Oz. And uh, he was killed in April of 1956. And Dayan uh, delivered the following words as part of his eulogy for Roy Rothberg. Let us not hurl blame at the murderers. Why should we complain of their hatred for us? Eight years have they sat in the refugee camps of Gaza and seen with their own eyes how we have made a homeland of the soil and the villages where they and their forebears once dwelt. Not from the Arabs of Gaza must we demand the blood of Roi, but from ourselves. How our eyes are closed to the reality of our fate, unwilling to see the destiny of our generation in its full cruelty. A generation of settlement are we, and without the steel helmet and the maw of the cannon, we shall not plant a tree nor build a house. Our children shall not have lives to live if we do not dig shelters, and without the barbed wire fence and the machine gun, we shall not pave a path or drill for water. We must not flinch from the hatred that accompanies and fills the lives of the hundreds of thousands of Arabs who lives around us and are waiting for the moment when their hands may claim our blood. We mustn't divert our eyes, lest our hands be weakened. That is the decree of our generation. That is the choice of our lives, to be willing and armed, strong and unyielding, lest the sword be knocked from our fists and our lives severed. So uh, here Moshe, Moshe Dayan is telling the members of Kibbutz Nachal Oz, which is right on the border of the Gaza Strip, that uh, they need uh, to be aware that the population of the Gaza Strip are Palestinian refugees and that um, they are angry and from their point of view for good reason uh, at the Zionist settlers on the borders of the Gaza Strip surrounding them and uh, to be militarily prepared and uh, to be cruel uh, when necessary uh, in, in confronting that. So uh, this is some of the essential background historically, I think, for what happened on October 7th, 2023. Our next speaker is Mohammed Nabil. Hailing from Khan Yunus in Gaza, Mohammed holds BAs in school counseling and psychology and Middle Eastern studies, along with an MS in critical theory and creative research. Now based in Portland, he's a passionate Palestinian rights activist formerly with Super at PSU and SJP at Evergreen State College. Muhammad's journey reflects resilience and commitment, using education and activism to raise awareness for justice and equality and the ongoing Palestinian cause. Um, my name is Muhammad. I'm from Gaza. I was born in Khanyunis. My dad's family come from the city of Biafra. And uh, my mom's family come from the city of Ramla. Both have been expelled from their families and uh, had to seek refuge in Gaza City after the 1948 Nakba, which basically we call it the catastrophe because it was the reason for the expulsion of all of our people. So we grew up in, I grew up in Khanunis. I was born in Khanunis and grew up as a refugee. And in fact, that counts for like about 60 to 70% of the Gaza population right now uh, that are actually uh, people who have been refugees from the Nakba and from the 1967 war. So you're already talking about like a whole area 
that are in addition to being like an open air prison i think it can qualify to be like one of the biggest refugee camps in the world with like about 2.3 million people uh i'm here to talk about like what's the reality that's happening on the ground right now we are on day 71 day 70 almost day 70 on the ongoing war since october 7 and the amount of suffering and the amount of um tragedy that's happening here is um unbelievable uh i'm going to try to share like few stories about like what's what is happening so right now to paint a quick image of like what's there there is almost 2 million people almost 90% of the gaza population are being displaced almost in the city of rafah in the most southern part of the strip with an area of like less than 9 meter 9 uh, kilometers square so gaza before all of this used to be like the most populated area on earth now imagine that 9 kilometers square and like what is happening and now we're talking about not a sheltered area not an area that designed to be an area to be uh used as a shelter and have the facilities no uh we're talking about uh improvised tent cities without basic access to water food and uh enough facilities to take care of people's hygiene needs and uh, basic bathrooms and uh, like clean clothing and all of that stuff my family actually had to evacuate from khanyunis city which used to be a safe place for um for the biggest part of for the first part of five days of uh the war on gaza and after that they got like a clear order to evacuate or die and uh, the israeli best mode of communication is like to throw leaflets or to um give you a dynamic map which been forced on the people and that's one of the things that's happening is you're expecting people to use a dynamic map that is done in english and uh, you're forcing boundaries on people and asking them to go from left to right now uh, unfortunately the dynamic map is like only helpful for the people who are able to have access to the internet um and uh, have access to a phone that has full charge the reality in gaza that like neither internet or uh electricity is readily available like people are uh, struggling to have access to um a data plan that allows them to even get a glimpse of like a whatsapp text my family had to seek refugee in uh, to rafah we spent like so much time to try to basically have access to a spot in a rundown building it's a concrete structure that's supposed to be a hospital someday but it did not and uh, that area since now have like more than 100,000 people very few are in that small building and the entire area surrounding it is uh, just like people with tents and uh, with no access to bathrooms there's no access to food there's no access to water there's no access to to fuel and um, until literally a week ago they my family and the people in the camp did not know like what the what what what's the organization that is um running the 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 site i'm struggling to find the terminology for it because i don't want to call it a camp i don't want to call it a tent city but it is a place to try to seek shelter that is not a functioning shelter uh, the 
another part of the reality in Gaza is the inability to grieve. We're talking about in a 70-day uh, escalation or assault, we lost more than 20,000 people. We lost more than uh, half or more the housing in Gaza. And we lost ma the majority of our hospitals. We lost our uh, historic sites, churches, mosques, and old hospitals. We lost mosques. We lost um, the public libraries. So Israel's um, actions are systematically targeting the societal foundation and the societal fabric that creates the Gaza Strip. By destroying all of these infrastructures and by destroying our human, uh, our brothers and um, sisters and children, um, it's basically targeting Gaza's existence and Gaza's idea of existence, not just uh, what they're saying is like we're targeting Hamas. We're seeing the majority of the bombs that are uh, being dropped on Gaza are non-targeting, indiscriminating, indiscriminating bombs that do not have any ability of doing a precise hit to target Hamas. Um, that is uh, a tragedy that the world is witnessing on um, on video and online, despite the systematic uh, disenfranchisement of the Gaza Strip image in the world by cutting the internet and cellular service. So up to yesterday, we had five full blackouts that been disconnecting Gaza from the entire world. That means no cellular service, no internet, and no um, any type of communication that is allowed to come or to get out of Gaza. Uh, being the one that ended yesterday was the longest for about like three or four days. So uh, in terms of like crimes against humanity and crimes against the Palestinian civilians, uh, in uh, Kamal Edwan, in the north part of Gaza, Israel literally committed one of its worst so far, which is like bulldozing a hospital with its people inside it and ongoing assault without any care for the sanctity of a human life. My cousin has lost her life, like has been killed alongside with her husband, and her entire uh, and his entire family we're talking about like almost uh, 20 people and at the same time when uh, that happened my cousin family who are sheltering in another part of Khanyunis has received an order to evacuate imagine like you're hearing the the the, the news of your sister or your daughter being killed and at the same time you have to flee your entire existence in order to seek shelter yourself and unfortunately these are not rare occasions in Gaza. it's happening every single day i hear like a version of this story i've heard about babies being born like my cousin gave a birth to a kid in october 30th this kid has been their entire life is an ongoing assault. So talking about all of these, we need to start to recognize Israel, the entity that it is. It's an occupying state. It's a tyrant state. It's a terrorist state. And it needs to stop. Unfortunately, we live in the United States. The United States is Israel's biggest enabler. So we need to recognize that we need to take action here because we live in this country and we need to uh, do whatever we can. Uh, 
parts of the things that we need, we need to recognize that we're giving Israel on average $10 million a day that without any type of restrictions or conditions, Biden recently basically bypasses Congress to deliver a huge amount of aid. We're talking about $10 billion of, uh, of aid to Israel. And uh, without even the observation or um, the input of Congress, our Congress is being sending bill after bill after bill to recognize Israel, to equate anti-Semitism with with anti-Israeli and any criticism of Israel. Uh, there is a bill that's being passed, I think, by the House to basically trying to consider the boycott of Israel and any Israeli comp- uh, Israeli supporting company to be boycott, to deem it illegal. Uh, these things have to stop. What's our power here? Our power is in continuing the boycott and continuing advancing for uh, communication with our senators and choose senators that actually are able to hear our voices and to act on it. And also, we need to start calling Israel the way that it is, and we need to start to demand Israel to be on the same scale and criticism bench like any other country. If Israel is committing human rights violations, Israel should be held accountable. If Israel is um, occupying a land, it should be held accountable. And where we haven't even touched the scope of the West Bank, we haven't even touched the scope of like what's going to happen after the end of the war, because we're talking about a completely decimated area. So I'm going to try to stop here right now and. Uh, I think it's a good point. Please just like keep the pressure on, and uh, the power that we have is amazing, but we need to use it wisely, and also we need to abolish the electoral college system because that's our way to freedom here in the U.S. and in Palestine. Thank you. Our next speaker is Wael El Asadi. Wael is a longtime advocate for Palestinian rights in Portland. He's a member of DSA and is an alumni of Portland State University, where he was a co-founder of SUPER, Students United for Palestinian Equal Rights. He was born in Damascus, Syria, which is where his family settled after being expelled from their homes in Palestine during the Nakba in 1948. Okay, great. So, um... I want to follow up with and fill in a little bit of the dynamic that Joel ended on in terms of Israel being a a settler colonial state, as well as expand on uh, some of what Muhammad said about uh, the really critical role we play in this country, the United States, and being able to end what's happening in uh, Palestine and Israel and and moving towards a just uh, peace in that region. And so what I want to fill in is, First, that Israel is a colonial settler state, as Joel went through and used the Zionist movement's early founders and leaders' own words to kind of show how they self-described and identified in that way. But I want to talk about the specific type of colonial settler state that Israel is, which is a pure colonial, a pure settler colony. And pure settler colonies seek not to exploit the indigenous population, right, to keep them around and use them as cheaper labor um, in a subjugated manner, but rather to control the land and eliminate or forcibly remove the indigenous population and replace it with members of the settler population. And I think this element and this dynamic is really critical uh, to understanding really the whole history of Israel and then also what we're seeing in this particular moment. I think it's very difficult to understanding it without understanding that specific element of Israeli society. Um, and, and pure settler colonies have what Patrick Wolf, who's one of the founders of the field of settler colonial studies, something called the logic of, li- of elimination. And Wolf described it in this way. He said, 
Elimination can be achieved through expulsion, death, or assimilation. And where elimination is not is, is, is impossible, separation is the next viable option, right? And you can use that sentence. Elimination can be achieved through expulsion, death, or assimilation. And where elimination is impossible, separation is the next viable option to understand almost the entire history of Israel and its relationship to the Palestinians in the different stages. Um, and if we especially look, Israel has always used regional and international crises and realignments to deepen its control of the land and carry out mass-scale expulsions where it could or death of the Palestinians. And then at periods where it can't or where it sees more, sees that it's more advantageous to itself, it just settles for separation, that is for apartheid. Um, with the indigenous population. And if we look through the entire history, that's what we see. And the Nakba, uh, in the aftermath of World War II, um, and during the retreat of the British Empire, Israel used that opportunity to expel over 700,000 Palestinians from their homes, never allowed them uh, to return. Um, Mohammed talked about how many of those Palestinians ended up in Gaza, and that's who's being attacked now. In 1967, during the Six-Day War, again, Israel took that opportunity to expel some 300,000 Palestinians who again have not been allowed to return uh, to their homes despite that being guaranteed under international law. In the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union and as the U.S. ascended to become the sole superpower, the U.S., with the assistance of the United States, used the cover of the Oslo Accords and the false promise that the Palestinians can have their own state so that Israel could normalize its occupation in the West Bank and use that for cover to expand its settlements and establish an apartheid regime in uh, the West Bank even as it was it was allowed to integrate into the international economy uh, at the time. Again, it used separation during that period, which it saw uh, as, as useful for itself. Again, during another period of international crisis after 9-11 and the, uh, and the beginning of the war on terror, this apartheid uh, that was begun was deepened during that period, and a cruel siege was also imposed on Gaza uh, in 2000. Um, uh, in, in the mid-2000s, as Joel uh, described. Again, another form of uh, separation and apartheid in which Gazans were put in a prison and not allowed to leave um, uh, th that, that very tiny territory. Uh, again, if we look at Trump's election, uh, a crisis and, if you will, a jolt to the American political system. The Israelis used that as cover to move. Uh, the, 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 this was used as a way to basically have the embassy be moved to Jerusalem um, and for the United States to acknowledge and uh, that Jerusalem is the capital um, of, of, of Israel, despite that being um, legal under international law. And it's also when the nation state law uh, passed in Israel during this period of political crisis in the United States would basically put in writing the reality of the Jewish supremacy of the Israeli state, uh, in which the nation state law essentially said only Jews have a right to self-determination in that land, and also said that Jewish settlements are uh, a source of national value that should be uh, pursued. And it's it's under these crises and under this logic of elimination, um, this logic of ethnic cleansing and colonial expansion that we have to understand uh, what Israel is doing today, in which it's using Hamas's attack as cover to make Gaza uninhabitable, and if they can cause a Nakba another Nakba, in which they forced the Palestinians um, from their homes um, and and um, and destroy it. And we don't have to really, you know, it, Israel has been very, very transparent about this. Um, we just have to listen to what their leaders are saying. I'll just use one quote, but I can go on and on and on here. Here's the defense minister. This is the, the, the minister of defense of the state of Israel, Gallant. He said, I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. 
This wasn't some person on Twitter randomly saying this. This was the defense minister of the state of Israel calling Palestinian humans uh, animals and saying they will have a full siege on the Gaza Strip. The next day, another Israeli high-ranking officer addressed the population of Gaza in Arabic this time to demoralize them. And he said, and I quote, human animals must be treated as such adding there will be no electricity no water there will only be destruction you wanted hell you will get hell and that's exactly what they have done in the gaza strip uh in this past 70 days i i won't go through all of the statistics uh muhammad muhammad spoke about that beautifully and 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 the painful reality of what's happening in the Gaza Strip but I think for those of us who live in the United States it's worth taking a look at one statistic to really give you because sometimes the numbers just get mind-numbing but there's one statistic that I really think can help us understand the scale of devastation the numbers right now are that one out of every 200 Gazans has been killed now if we take that and we apply that to the numbers here in the United States. If one out of every 200 Americans were killed, that means we would have 1.6 million Americans killed. Or to put it in another way, the equivalent of 550 9-11s for this country. That is what Gaza has gone through um, during this period. That's what Israel has done to the Gaza Strip. And now that international pressure after 70 days, after all the devastation, after people cannot ignore the attacks on hospitals, uh, the the clear and indiscriminate carpet bombing that Israel was doing, um, after all of that, you know, th there's pressure now and, and for the indiscriminate and massive killing to end. So what's Israel's plan for the day after when they finally do have to stop um, uh, do this? Are they going to negotiate with the Palestinians? Are they going to go back and pursue peace? Um, and, and here, I think you can listen to Netanyahu's own words. He said this a few days ago because the United States has been pressuring them to uh, begin negotiations for a two-state solution. Um, Netanyahu said, I am I'm proud that I prevented the establishment of a Palestinian state because today everybody understands that one Palestinians that everybody understands what that Palestinian state could have been now that we've seen the little Palestinian state in Gaza and if you go through and you listen to the to the um British, uh, the Israeli ambassador to Britain, they say the same thing, no uh, Palestinian state. Every uh, Israeli official is gone on record as saying that. And that kind of tells us two things. One, we now know after years and years of lying, saying that it was the Palestinians um, that rejected generous offers and simply didn't want peace, they are now at least being honest about the fact that they're the ones that prevented the establishment of a Palestinian state, and it's something that they were never interested in in the first place. The other thing that tells us is that after this happens, Israel's plan appears to be that it just will return to its slower form of ethnic cleansing and its apartheid. It'll continue the slower settlement expansion in the West Bank. And I and I don't mean it's, it's, it's actually very extreme and very fast, but in relation to the amount of killing that's happening in Gaza, it will return to that and hope that things will blow over, that the world will begin to ignore the issue again. And then it will just wait as it has historically done for its next opportunity to eliminate and expel Palestinians and deal another blow to the Palestinian um, social fabric. So that is what we are up against. That's the logic of the state of Israel as it's currently uh, composed of. Um, it is a 19th century style colonialism with 21st century weaponry. And do we have to just accept this? Is is that kind of is 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 colonialism just making a comeback nowadays, along with far right ideologies? Um, is Israeli society just destined to be a violent colonial society, and Palestinians are just going to be under their thumb or expelled or killed? Um, I think the answer is no. Uh, we we have seen historically that colonial settler states are not set in stone. They can be decolonized. And former colonists can actually live in peace with the indigenous population. 
if they acknowledge and respect the rights of their former colonial subjects, and if they give up their power of domination, I think uh, their position of domination. But I think the central point is colonial states have never given up their power on their own. They ultimately have to be pressured and forced into giving up uh, the, that position of domination. Um, now, is that possible then? Can Israel be pressured into this situation? Can the costs of continuing the colonization uh, begin to outweigh the benefits? So I'll end with just say, saying a few things about how we can build a movement that can end U.S. military and political support. I think it has to be a multi-pronged strategy. We have to protest. We have to build campaigns. We have to do education. But as we know, both from the George Floyd protest, the protests around the world, protests themselves aren't enough. We actually have to get at the levers of power. We have to build support among unions. It's really excellent that we have people who are picketing outside of different companies, um, outside of ports um, to try to build the boycott divestment sanction movement, but we can't just pick it outside, but we have to continue to build the relationships with workers and among unions. And I'm really happy to see that for the first time, more and more unions have called for a ceasefire beginning to engage and understand that support for Israel must end as long as it continues its violations of Palestinian rights. Our next speaker is Noah Grayevsky. Noah is a Palestinian Jew of Mizrahi Sephardic, Ashkenazi, and Romaniot descent. She was born in Israel, and her family, on some sides, have been in the land of Palestine for upwards of 20 generations. Noah was raised within a liberal Zionist family and was steeped in Zionist education, art, music, recreation, politics, and ideology throughout her upbringing. Her extended family lives in Israel, and she has cousins currently serving as reserve soldiers in the IDF. Noah and her family members live with the effects of war or trauma. Noah works as a psychotherapist in Portland, Oregon, and studied the psychological effects of war during her graduate studies. Um, I am a Palestinian Jew. And I'm not trying to appropriate, pa appropriate Palestinian identity by saying that. What I'm trying to share is that both sides of my family have ancestors that have lived in Palestine, in the land of Palestine, for hundreds of years, long before the state of Israel was founded. The PLO considers Jews who lived in Palestine before Israel and before Zionist settlement to be Palestinian, which is something that I found out in the past few years. So now I would love to share um, just for a few minutes about the beginning of my awareness of the cracks in the Zionism and the Zionist education that I grew up in. So when I was growing up, I was very proud to be Israeli. And it's um, complicated to admit that there are parts of me that still feel that way today, although, um, you know, because it's a place that my family is and is from. Um, and it's so woven into me with my education, although I'm I'm feeling less and less proud to be a part of uh, the Israeli people and to be associated with Israel these days. Um, so when I was young, I went to a Zionist Jewish summer camp, and they required that the youth there, the American youth, um, participated in Jewish services every morning. And I didn't really, I was raised in a very secular family, so I didn't really want to participate in the main prayer service. And there was a counselor who took a group of us who didn't want to participate to do like spiritual activities outside in nature. Um, and I remember that counselor took us outside. There was like this big field of grass and she had us meditate and be quiet and like watch the movement of the grass in the wind and try to feel a connection to something bigger than ourselves. And I remember in that moment, I actually started to feel connected to some divine presence that was larger than me. Um, and this may or may not uh, make sense now why I'm sharing it, but it will in a little while. Um, when I was 14 years old, I was in a missile attack when I was in the north of Israel, and it was a really traumatizing experience for me. Um, it was only one night I was in a bomb shelter 
Um, I had to run to a bomb shelter and there were a lot of explosions and I was separated from some family members for part of it. And it was really very frightening. And I still deal with some trauma from it today, although um, this experience has led me to really feel deeply for Palestinians and Gazans who are experiencing um, such indiscriminate bombing and who don't have bomb shelters to be in. Like the trauma that I experienced after one night um, makes it hard to even imagine what Palestinians are experiencing and have experienced. Um, but after, during, I remember I was writing a poem after that experience in the bomb shelter. Um, I was 14 and I wrote this poem and one of the lines was, why would people want to kill people? And I think that um, what people wanted me to take from that experience was a hatred for Palestinians. But um, what I took instead was a genuine curiosity about why these people would want to send rockets onto people that they didn't know. Uh, sort of an assumption that there must be some reason why people wanted to do that. So another thing is that my dad has really severe trauma as a veteran of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Um, the ways that his deep trauma have affected me throughout my life um, are immense and they're not fully mine to share out of honor for his privacy. Um, but what I will share is that I grew up with a lot of fear and um, an awareness that he would dissociate and really deeply struggle as a result of symptoms of PTSD. And um, I think I was supposed to take from that experience anger at like our enemies in quotations. And it, instead I took from it anger at our military. I, I grew up with an extreme uh, full body anger towards the Israeli Defense Force that sent my father as a young person into a brutal war. Um, and and also this the state that created a situation that, that required a war like that. Um, I have a very deep love of my people, the Jewish people, and a recognition that our traditions and texts tell us to save a life at all costs. Our tradition teaches us that all humans are made in the image of the divine, and I remember learning that growing up. Um, and that started to put a crack in these Zionist ideologies for me because Palestinians must also be made in the image of the divine, and we must also be commanded to save a life of anybody at all costs. Um, so also the fact that I am Israeli and have spent a lot of time in Israel. And so I've been surrounded by Arabs and Palestinians my whole life, both in my family. Um, one side of my family is, you know, a descent from Syria and Palestine. So they are Arab and also just like on all sides of my family, we are people whose neighbors uh, from living in that region have been Arab Muslims and Christians my whole life and many generations before. So I have like a deep knowing in my body that, um, that Arab peoples are deeply human and beautiful peoples. Um, the familiarity of the language, food, culture, and customs. Um, so I have like a lot of, because in my family, we share a lot of the language, food, culture, and customs that Palestinian Arabs, Muslims, and Christians have. Um, I feel like a sense of warmth, familiar warmth. Um, both towards my family who are Arab and my family who lived in the region for a really, really long time, and also towards their neighbors who sound like them and eat like them and have cultural customs like them. So in college, I remember learning more critically about the Zionist project. Um, I remember taking a class about Tel Aviv and seeing photos that were publicized internationally um, during the, the formation of the Israeli state to try to encourage support for Israel and for Zionism. And um, I remember seeing photos that were supposed to be of where Tel Aviv was. That's how they were published in, in newspapers and in media, but they were actually photos from the desert, from the Negev. Um, and they were trying to show that there was nothing there. And I knew that there was something there 
because I knew that I had spent time in Yafo, in Jaffa, which is adjacent. And I knew that there were ancient buildings there and that there were tons of people there. Um, I also knew that um, I learned that the first Zionist World Congress was in 1895, which wasn't that long ago. And um, I knew from my family history that contrary to what so many of my Jewish friends believed, that my family was treated really, really well in Palestine, actually. I knew that um, my grandmother was full of stories of her neighbors treating her well, her and her family well. I had a recent conversation with my mom, my Ima, uh, just a couple weeks ago, and um, she's a beautiful person with a really big heart and beautiful values. And she was telling me that she feels much more grief when an Israeli person is kidnapped than when a Palestinian person is killed. And um, this was devastating to me. So I was asking her a lot of questions to understand. And she said to me something like, um, you know, it's only natural to feel like when people in your tribe are hurt, that you feel a closer affinity to them. And, and that really confused me. Um, and I shared with her, you know, um, Ima is a person whose family for her is from Syria and from the Middle East. And um, the people who live in Gaza and in the West Bank are like the neighbors of our grandmother. Like those are the people who were displaced during Nakba and who um, were moved uh, forcibly left and ended up in those places. And they speak the same language uh, as your family and they eat the same food as your family and they have very similar customs to your family and they were the literal friends of our Safta Geula and her mother and their families. So like why is it that you would feel a stronger connection to an imagined nation that's full, for example, like a stronger connection to like an Irish Jewish girl who had been kidnapped, then you would feel to people who were your grandmother's neighbors who are so um, ethnically and culturally close to your family who are being murdered. And that really touched her. Um, and I think that it's been this realization throughout my life that I am closer to Palestinian Christians and Muslims in some ways than to Jews from parts of the world that my family has never even been to. Um, and then finally, uh, as a young adult, I took some visits to Hebron and to settlements in the West Bank and um, saw the border crossings that Palestinians have to use to cross and um, saw the ways that Israelis, my country, is um, oppressing and, and creating an apartheid system that is so brutal that our Palestinian neighbors live under. Um, and that was really a break for me from the Zionist ideologies I was raised with. Um, but, you know, I refuse to be the enemy of my kin. I refuse to be the enemy of my kin. I refuse to kill the people who were the neighbors of my grandmother, Geula. I refuse to participate in an, uh, a war machine of occupation and genocide and siege that does harm to my kin. Um, I try to look around to see who is profiting off of this war machine. Um, I turn towards my people with love and I refuse to be separated from my Palestinian neighbors. Um, and finally, for me, this is about saving the soul and the path of my Jewish people. So I love my Jewish people very, very, very deeply. We have been a beautiful people long before Zionism came to be as a political ideology and movement. And I, I love us and I love our soul and we are being deeply corrupted through the process of being participating in a murderous, um, occupying, violent, land stealing political movement and i can't let this happen without speaking up so thank you 
You have been listening to a community forum on ending the cycle of violence in Palestine and Israel, organized by members of Jewish Voice for Peace, originally held at the Friends Meeting House in Portland, Oregon, and re-recorded for KBU Community Radio. My name is Emma Lugo, your host. Thank you for listening. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. KBOO Community Radio is listener sponsored. That's right. 80% of our funding comes from donations from listeners just like you. You can always make a donation to help keep KBOO colorful, independent, and non-commercial at kboo.fm give. But right now, during our end-of-the-year campaign, this is the perfect time to contribute. Give now and help us to reach our goal of $75,000 by December 31st. Be a ray of light in your community by making your tax-deductible donation at kboo.fm slash give today. <laughs>